Hello. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be talking about what's been done in the past to help homeowners with the design of their homes when rebuilding after bushfire. I'll be sharing some specific resources that you can access if you need design help with your rebuild. And I'll also be introducing architect Julie Furkin to you. She'll actually be sharing some insights about bushfire home design and her involvement in a scheme that was established by the Victorian Government Architect after the Black Saturday fires in 2009. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. It wasn't long after the bushfires this past summer of 2019-2020 in Australia that all types of industries rallied together to offer help to those who had lost everything and now needed to rebuild. At the time of recording this podcast, it's August 2020, and it's been seven months since the worst of the fires. Of course, we've also had a pandemic to contend with since then too, and so for many who are needing to rebuild, they're still working out what they'll actually do. In the months that have passed, many volunteers and companies have mobilised to go into fire-affected communities and to help with clearing sites and planning next steps. Some ventures have been more successful than others and some areas have been more impacted by COVID lockdowns than others. In this episode, I wanted to take a little time to talk about a scheme that was actually launched by the Victorian Government Architects after the Black Saturday fires of 2009. It was called the Bushfire Home Service, and I'll be sharing some information on what it involved, and I'll also be introducing architect Julie Furkin to you, who will tell us about her involvement and the house that she designed for it. I'm also going to be talking about what's been done in the design industry and what's being done to provide support and help those impacted by the more recent fires in 2019-2020 and where you can go for help with your home design and uh, rebuild right now. Now remember as well, you can grab a full transcript of this episode and all the other episodes that we're doing in season 12 and you can also get all the links uh, that I mentioned by heading to the show notes, they're all there in the resources. The day that's known as Black Saturday is when on 7th of February 2009, fires moved rapidly through Victoria and destroyed 2,029 homes and 173 people tragically lost their lives. 
At the time, many parts of the building and design industry rallied together to offer help. And the Victorian Building Commission organised a series of built environment bushfire support roundtables, where various organisations from the industry, including the Australian Institute of Architects, actually got together to discuss what services were needed and what could be offered by those in the industry. Now, at the same time, the new bushfire construction standards that had been in the works for some time, they were being accelerated uh, and they were about setting the requirements for what rebuilds would actually need to adhere to in the future in order to be more bushfire resistant. And they're all the bushfire codes that we work to now, our AS3959. So from those meetings and the fact that many architects were actually offering their services pro bono to those who'd lost their homes, the Victorian Government architect actually established something they called the Bushfire Homes Scheme. Now, this scheme was actually inspired by the Small Home Service from 1947. There was a particular architect that actually put forward this idea as a strategy that could be used. And the Small Home Service... Uh, was actually something used in post-war times. It was an endeavour that was about dealing with the need for housing and about trying to involve architects in the provision of housing at a time when there was so much need for housing. Now, a range of architects at the time in the in the late 1940s created designs for modern affordable homes. And for only £5, you could actually purchase a set of plans that were sufficient to get the home built and get some specification information as well. Now, that scheme is actually responsible for some of the fantastic mid-century modern homes that still exist today. It really introduced modern residential architecture into the mainstream in Victoria, and there was a big uptake. It was very popular amongst home buyers at the time. So thinking about that as a strategy, the, the Bushfire Home Scheme worked from sort of the same idea. In the Bushfire Home Service, architects were actually called to create an affordable design for a family home that met at the time the brand new BAL 40 requirements. And they were asked to prepare four A3 pages that documented the house. Now, 18 home designs were chosen and there were costing reports that were created by quantity surveyors for each home. So there was this one-page costing report that gave an indicative cost uh, and all of those designs were published on a website with their costs and made freely available to those that were, re- were rebuilding in affected locations. So the idea was that as someone who was needing to rebuild, you could go onto the website that was put together by the Victorian Government Architect and the Victorian Government, and you could review these designs that were created by architects, and you could see the costs. You could see that there was one for, that was fit for your wishes and your site and the kind of budget that you had, and then you could submit your details to the website. And then the architect of that house would get in touch with you. They would set up a meeting where you could talk more about your site and your specific needs. And the architect of the home could then sketch any suggestions or changes to the home in order to make it suit your site more or suit your needs. And that meeting, that consultation meeting was also included for free. Now, you could then choose to take those drawings to a draftsperson or a builder to be able to continue the documentation, or you could commission the architect that had designed the house in the first place to work with them to do what you needed to, to organise approvals and get your construction documentation sorted and get construction um, on site. And there was also information about the fact that prior to the meeting with the architect, it was requested that you got a bowel assessment or a bushfire attack level assessment done of your site. And at the time, the Victorian Building Commission had organised to provide those bowel assessments at no charge. So a homeowner could get that 
that bowel assessment done via that avenue with the with the free offering from the Victorian Building Commission and they could then pull that information together. They were also asked to bring a site plan of their site if they had one and any photographs that they could take of their site so that they could help the architect uh, understand the site more, understand what kind of conditions the house was going into and then be able to provide more site-specific recommendations. Now, it's quite extraordinary to think that this happened and this existed and that these designs were freely available. It, it actually, the Bushfire Homes Scheme, it included some fantastic homes um, and there were some really big names from the Australian residential design industry. There were renowned award-winning architects like BVN Donovan Hill, uh, Claire Cousins was another architect, John Wardell, just to name a few. So, And the home designs uh, that were included were contemporary. They explored ideas about modular layouts so that they could be adapted for size and for the site. And there were some quite interesting shapes and alternatives for cladding materials, plus ways to enable self-sufficiency in regional locations and great sustainability measures. And the CSI road helped the architects understand what was going to create a more bushfire-resistant design because, as you can imagine, the bushfire standards were all still quite new. So the CSIRO was was giving the architects information to help them understand and it was quite interesting to see how different architects interpreted those ideas into the different design approaches that they took. And there really were a range of approaches. And look, in my opinion, there wasn't anything that was really out there or really crazy or really unconventional. Or, you know, you can find that when you source kind of design ideas for houses from architects, you can get a lot of really sort of pushing the envelope ideas. That's not what this was, but they were, they, you know, I, I look at them and I think that they're elegant and they're functional and they're simple designs and they're forms. However, they are contemporary homes. They, you know, quite... Um, quite modern in their, in their form and in their articulation. And interestingly, you can't see the, the images of these houses anymore. There's actually, um, in 2014, Jennifer Calzini wrote a really fantastic article about the scheme in a magazine um, that's no longer published, but it's a magazine called Mark Magazine. And the article was called Black Saturday, Five Years Later, and it actually reviewed the scheme and what it achieved. And it included interviews with six of the architects who were involved. And I'm going to pop a link to that article because I can access that article publicly online. So I'm going to pop a link to that on um, the resources. So you can check that out for yourself and you can read the interview with these six architects and see the house designs that they designed. I was fortunately given a copy of all of the house designs and all of the QS reports as part of my research um, in this Rebuild and Build Better content series, but it's not something I can go ahead and publish. So, and of course, the architects that provided those designs pro bono did it with the understanding of the fact of what they were going to be used for at the time. And so I wouldn't want to go ahead and publish them on websites now without, without obviously the, you know, with them potentially getting used for something that they weren't intended for. So, but I do want to read from Jennifer's article in the Mark magazine, because I think it summarizes really well how this scheme fared. And even though we're now six years on from when it was written, and of course, you know, 11 years on from when those fires occurred, I actually think it gives really great insight for the current endeavours that are happening in the design and building industry in helping and supporting homeowners who are rebuilding homes after losing everything. Because, you know, it's it's quite interesting as a scheme to think, well, there were 18 designs that you could freely use and apply to your site, but anybody who's designing a home knows how personal an endeavour it is how tailored an endeavour it is, how 
emotional it can be. And then lay on top of that the fact that you've lost your home and potentially everything you own in a bushfire. And that's the context in which you're rebuilding on a site that has been, you know, devastated by fire. And working with a designer in that environment is another kettle of fish entirely. So it's quite yeah, it's quite interesting to see how it was as a scheme then and then what is being done now. And I'll talk more about what's being done now in a minute. But I just wanted to sort of talk, read from this article because I think it explains um, quite interestingly how this scheme fared over, overall. So Jennifer actually says this. She says, if success is measured by the uptake of the service, the initiative may be seen as something of a disappointment. Although the number of designs built is not yet known, inquiries in the initial stages were sparse and it appears that not many plans were realised. And just as a interject, we still I still don't know how many of these designs were actually built. Um, the, 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 a lot of the architects don't really know. It's hard to know if somebody took the plan and went ahead and built it anyway without sort of going and speaking to the architect because they were freely available and published online. Um, there was nothing stopping anybody from just taking a design and going and completely customising it and changing it and working with somebody local. So it is really hard to know. There's, there was no sort of track through of where where designs actually got built. Now, Jennifer continues, um, so two main reasons explain the low uptake. The first one, rather straightforward, is timing. After the event, people were simply not ready to rebuild. Communities were devastated and harrowing accounts of escape and attempts to fight the fire described by the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission were still present in the communal consciousness. The Royal Commission convened soon after the fires in the same year and was in itself part of the recovery and healing process. Emotional recovery and community rebuilding needed to happen before physical rebuilding could take place. It took time and some people never went back to live in the towns that had burned to the ground. The second and more fundamental reason speaks to the role of architects in Australia. Shane Murray, Professor of Architecture at RMIT University, reported in 2007 that less than 10% of the housing in Australia has architectural involvement, and many observers consider the figure for architectural involvement in new housing to be even smaller. The industry responsible for general housing in Australia is characterised by small-scale, cottage-based, craft-oriented building practices with little design input. For many victims of the bushfires, the concept of using architects was alien to their way of thinking. A further observation is that the designs offered did not replace what had been lost. They were, in fact, a challenge to existing housing, which was much more traditional. Then and now, the bushfire home service designs were at a variance with most of the houses in Australia. Following Black Saturday, a community conference was held in Marysville, one of the towns badly affected by the fires, to talk about what the government's rebuilding efforts could offer. It emerged that the community had clear and progressive ideas about the future and that the residents of Marysville saw themselves as agents of the rebuilding. The designs offered were also progressive, but they were not necessarily what these people had in mind. Someone commented about the lack of pitched roofs, saying that none of the designs looked like their house or reminded them of the town they remembered. Architects had responded with innovative ideas based on new design language and despite the community's wish to go forward, these individuals were also seeking comfort in the familiar. Now even though that was written six years ago about fires that occurred 11 years ago, I think that a lot of that would still be relevant today. The numbers of, uh, you know, in terms of percentage of of homes uh, in Australia that involve architects is probably pretty similar, even maybe even less. There's sort of stats around the fact that it's 5%. So it's quite interesting to think about 
uh, that and whether those rebuilding are familiar with architects and what working with an architect is like and whether this type of scheme would work now. And it's also quite um, interesting to see that conversation around wanting to create something, wanting to push push community and building forward, but also wanting to do that in a way that is familiar and remembers the place that has been destroyed. So I think it's a really, for me, I think that part of the challenge of rebuilding and and so many industries offering pro bono help is really being able to connect into what do people who are rebuilding really need and how do we support and help them realise the true recovery out of such a traumatic event and how can we partner with them to support and guide them in a way that really yeah, just really helps helps them do that in the best way possible. And so I think that it's really interesting to see how that scheme existed and perhaps didn't get the uptake that anybody anticipated um, and then what's being done now. So the this article that was in the Mark magazine, it also included an interview with Julie Furkin, who is our guest for this podcast. So I want to introduce Julie to you. Now, for over 10 years, Julie Furkin Architects has actually been bringing creativity and problem-solving prowess to projects big and small in and around Melbourne. An award-winning firm that's headed up by architect Julie Furkin, they pride themselves on a personal and people-focused approach to architecture. Julie has a hands-on approach to all projects and designs by visualising herself in the space, which helps to create homes that are a joy to live in and spaces that are both practical and beautiful. Julie studied and practiced internationally and she worked for several years at Renowned Practices and she brings this breadth of experience to her private practice, weaving a local approach and an international perspective into everything that she does. While Julie Firkin Architects has the skills and expertise to deliver a range of projects from residential to commercial and small to large, Julie has a personal interest in both sustainable and bushfire resistant design. Her design for a bushfire resistant house was featured by the Bushfire Home Service following the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 and Julie has taught extensively on the subject. Now, Mark Hearn interviewed her for the article uh, that I mentioned in Mark Magazine, and she begins by saying, Julie Furkin was working in New York on 11th of September 2001, which is what we now know as 9-11, and she had just launched her own architecture studio in Melbourne when the Victorian bushfires of early 2009 destroyed over 2,000 homes. Pro bono participation following both events not only helped Julie to personally process what had happened, her projects also acted as a catalyst for communities on both continents to pave a way forward. We're going to hear a little bit from Julie now as she actually talks about the home that she designed for the Bushfire Home Service called Horizon House. And in our next episode, Julie will be back to share more on the work that she's done around bushfire community centres and bushfire design generally. So let's hear more from Julie. Well, Julie, it's awesome to have you here. I'm really excited to be speaking with you about, uh, I suppose, your experience and your background in the world of bushfire design, because I know that you've dipped your, well, you've delved into it in lots of different ways and explored it in lots of different ways over a very long period of time. So I think you'll have a wealth of knowledge to be able to share with the UA community. I wanted to start by understanding a bit more about the home design that you created as part of the bushfire home scheme that the Victorian uh, government architects created after the fires in 2009 you designed a house called the horizon house and uh i was wondering what it was like 
to create a design for an imaginary client, an imaginary site, um, but that it still had to tackle all of the newly released uh, fire codes and bowel ratings that were very new to the industry at the time and you know everybody was trying to wrap their heads around. How did you find that whole process of designing the Horizon House? Um, it was an interesting one. Um, I'd have to say my approach was partly technical and partly intuitive. Uh, so, on the one hand, there were the new standards um, which were overhauled after Black Saturday. So, I basically tabulated those so that I could see all the uh, construction requirements that were um, corresponded to different um, risk levels of your site. And then, once I felt I understood that, I took a more intuitive um, approach and really tried to imagine myself being in the site. So. Um, the design was driven by the idea that a building can provide safety um, in bushfire-prone areas, but it can also enable the occupants to enjoy and appreciate the natural surroundings. So the concept was to take a fairly simple and linear building and then take a large slice out of the middle of it, creating a sense of transparency and views through the house and allowing some indoor-outdoor living. Um, and then this open centre can then be um, shut down with bushfire-resistant shutters um, when danger approaches. So I really didn't want to let go of the opportunity to enjoy the outdoors from within the house. I love visiting my parents' place in country Victoria and seeing sunsets in the garden and the trees um, in autumn and spring. So I think a lot of the reason people live in uh, regional areas because they want to enjoy these type of things. No, I love that. And I, that's something that, you know, I'll pop uh, links to the design images in the resources because I think that it's very clear that there's a lot of transparency about the house, which when you start to see what's required by bowel ratings, particularly in bowel 40 and bowel flame zone, you know, you can start to feel like you've got to shut off all of that in, internal, external connection and that sense of transparency and immediacy of connection to the outside. But I think the Horizon House does a beautiful job of marrying the two, that sort of home in the landscape that can also provide all those additional protect, protection measures. So I think you did, you know, I did a great, a great result. Now it was a, it was a three bed, two bath home. It had a concrete slab on ground and uh, it was timber framed in the internal walls, but then there was precast concrete in the external walls and it had a skillion pitched roof. So knowing more now about bushfire resilient design and building, what would you do differently with the material selections and the design for the Horizon House? Um, well, I've run a few uh, more master's design studios since then and we delved into material choices um, for bushfire resistant construction. So now I'd consider using um, a steel stud frame instead of um, a more conventional timber frame as this is far less susceptible to ember attack. And then I'd also consider using fibre cement sheet cladding which is a relatively low cost material that performs really well in bushfire situations um, and it can be detailed to minimise the number of gaps where burning embers can lodge and cause a hazard. I'd like to design more bushfire resistant houses in regional areas and I really want to get the word out that these houses can be beautiful and they don't have to be too expensive. Yeah, I think that that's 
it's fantastic that you say that because the immediate, you know, I work with a lot of homeowners through my online courses and through my online community that might have a Bow 40 or a Bow Flame Zone rating on their property. And all of a sudden it's just thrown around that they need to factor in, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars extra for all of the add-on measures for these types of sites. But when you do approach it with, I suppose, a more holistic understanding of what the site may need to meet those levels, and then how can you achieve that affordably using conventional materials, um, the, the opportunities do open up, don't they? I mean, the fact that fibre cement sheeting, which is seen as kind of a very low cost but building material choice, um, does have those fire resistant properties is actually really exciting wow. as an alternative uh, in these types of areas, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things that you can do quite simply and just choosing a different location on the site might reduce your bell rating as well. So, yeah, a holistic approach, um, just a general understanding is good to have. Now, what was really interesting about the bushfire home scheme is that there were a range of homes that were included. There were 18 architects' designs that were included and it was all put onto a website which no longer exists. It was a website called We Will Rebuild by the Victorian Government Architects. And it's actually hard to know how many were rebuilt. I mean, do you know whether yours was ever used by anybody? Um, I did receive several calls from people who were interested, um, which was great. Um, but I never um, heard back beyond that initial call. So I don't know um, if they ever got built or how they turned out. And I would love to know. So. Yeah, because I can imagine there may be some people who just took the designs and then ran with them and used local people to, you know, took them straight to a builder, for example, and maybe adapted it or changed things here and there to still meet the requirements. And then, you know, uh, possibly some are existing. And, and I know, you know, having looked at the research, there were a couple of architects that did go on to work with people in those areas with those designs, but it, it is hard to know. And I think that what's also interesting is there were obviously conversations at the time about whether this was the right approach to help and support people, whether um, whether it was still too, uh, considered too, too challenging, I suppose, just to, to take that proprietary design and run with it and whether people needed more support. And also the designs were all quite, they were quite contemporary. And there was, I, you know, in my research I was reading, there was some questions around whether they were perhaps too contemporary or too avant-garde, that people were looking for something a bit more familiar, something a bit more conventional, um, more like the kind of house that they would have had and lost. And so I think it's it's quite interesting because now post the 2019-2020 fires, the solution from the architectural community has been, um, you know, there was an architect that basically straight off the bat set up Architects Assist and then that's since been sort of rolled into the Australian Institute of Architects are helping with that. And so many architects, thousands of architects have registered to offer pro bono services to people who are rebuilding after a bushfire. I know that you've put your company's name down to be able to do that. Do you think this will be more effective as a solution than just simply offering a house plan um, as part of the bushfire home scheme? How do you see this, I suppose, differing and rolling out and how it might potentially provide other opportunities or whether it will be difficult for people in that position to be adopted? Do you have any sort of thoughts on, on this as a solution? Um, I think there's pros and cons. I think um, there's probably more administration needed up front to match all the architects with the people needing help. 
Um, but once that contact's been made, I think it would be a real benefit to be designing for a real client and a real site and knowing what they want and need. Um, so I think that's great. Um, I'd just say that the, the good thing about the Bushfire Home Service back in 2009 was that it, it just put some ideas out into the public and I know that they responded because of the calls that I got. Um, so um, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait to see. Yeah. I think in the end probably it's better to work with the architect a little bit longer um, than just taking a house design and running with it. Have you had any calls via the Architects Assist process yet or do you feel it's still too early days? Uh, I think it might be early days. Um, also, um, I might not be in the right location. Um, they might prefer someone who's closer uh, to them. Um, so, but I'm, you know, I'm here and I'm ready to help. <laughs> yeah, yep. it was very heartening to see how many architects did jump to that call of offering those services because what, what's potentially being offered is a sizable amount of time and, um, and a sizable contribution of effort and energy and expertise on a pro bono basis. So, you know, I remember that the call was that it had to, you had to be able to run through any town planning, you know, documentation, those types of things. So it's a, it is a much more significant commitment as an architect than I suppose the bushfire home service was. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's um, that, that's going to be something that needs to be carefully understood by both sides at the beginning is how much of the service can be pro bono. Um, a whole house project for an architect is, is a lot of work and there's not many architects who can afford to do that all for free because they have to earn a living. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, we do want to help. So, so we just have to get the balance right. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how that rolls out. And of course, there's, you know, there's also a similar group of interior designers who are also offering their services pro bono. So um, it's always fantastic to see an industry um, like the architectural and design industry really jump to the cause of taking care of people. It, I'm, I'm curious to see how long it takes perhaps for there to be sort of more significant uptake. And like you say, there may be architects that are in closer locations who are already sort of in the throes of it it's um it's i think with COVID 19 unfortunately that a lot of the communication and the information has shifted to that focus of managing the industry through COVID 19 and so you're not necessarily getting that kind of understanding or um communication about how uh, this, this, the industry is handling the recovery efforts. Um, you know, it's only really through following social media and seeing people on the ground, still clearing sites, still rolling through, you know, getting people back into some temporary accommodation. Yeah, I think it's early days. Did you enjoy that? I really hope that you found it helpful to learn more about the Bushfire Home Service and to hear Julie talk about the home design that she did for it. Make sure you head to the resources in the show notes. I've got links there where you can see Julie's Horizon House. You can also check out some of the other home designs and there's lots of other information there that you can access as well. Now, what I mentioned up front uh, before we dived into learning more about the Bushfire Home Service is that I wanted to also talk about what help there is to access now in the design and building industry for those that are rebuilding. The approach 
has been quite different in our response to 2019-2020 fires. And I think that the access to technology has certainly made a difference because there's really no need to wait for a government organisation or some type of, you know, uniform platform to really galvanise people into action and create a collective. It's much easier for you to just create one yourself and then to mobilise people around it. And that's what a designer whose name is Jiri Lev actually did very early on. He created Architects Assist and soon after the Australian Institute of Architects actually came on board to support it. And it's also supported by some other industry bodies as well. Now, over 600 architectural practices have signed up to offer pro bono work to those impacted. And the site basically offers a bit of a matchmaking service. So if you're looking for help, you can go on and register your details and you'll get matched with an architect who's in your area or one who can work with you remotely. And if you're an architect, then you can register your practice and you can wait to be matched with a potential client. And if you want to register as an architect, you've got to agree to a range of conditions and those types of things as part of being involved in the scheme. Now, the extent of pro bono services is actually, to a certain extent, up to the individual architects and clients to negotiate. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that rolls out long term and what that looks like as the practice really um, gets used more, you know, in a a more widely spread way. There's also 1,400 students and graduates of architecture that have also signed up and they're there to be involved in the design and rebuilding work. And there's uh, things happening at the moment to try and look at how they can access mentoring and those types of things as well. So it's pretty amazing what has happened in terms of the industry rallying around wanting to offer help and support to those who need to rebuild. And not to be held back by lockdowns or border closures, Jiri Lev and his partner and their young child have actually been on a road tour of impacted locations over the past while. They got in their car and drove and they've been sharing their news on the ground and going into locations and talking about Architects Assist and how Architects Assist can help and making people aware of it. And they've also been sharing their journey of this road trip on their Instagram account. So I'm going to pop a link in the resources so that you can check that out. There's some really amazing drone footage of areas that are showing recovery and you can see what's happening in terms of regrowth and how areas are faring. Um, it's really amazing and it's amazing to see what Jerry Lev and his family are actually doing to be able to reach these locations and meet with people and speak to them. And Jerry's also been sharing uh, information on things around strategies and building materials and those kinds of things. He's very passionate about sustainable design um, and so it's, it's a great resource generally looking at that Instagram account and following along. Now, Design Donated is another venture that's coordinated by over 250 interior designers that are offering their services pro bono. Now, and interestingly, I've actually had um, members of the UA community get in touch with me because I mentioned Design Donated in the very first episode of this season. And uh, there's been some UA community members who've already got in touch with them to get help for their project. So it's awesome to hear. And I'm going to pop a link in the resources for them as well. On the ground, there's various different groups and I mentioned some of them in my first episode of the season as well. So make sure you head back and check that out if you haven't heard that. Um, But I did want to mention Shed Life here. So I actually first came across them. I was following uh, an Instagram account called Fire Relief Run and this was a not-for-profit organisation. It was basically a group of volunteers that were just heading into impacted areas, giving up huge amounts of their time and helping people set up temporary accommodation, you know, clearing their sites, getting, you know, access to a range of supports and then they've become, they were seeking donations for help and then they've become a not-for-profit organisation. And then interestingly, and they say this on the Shed Life website, 
They say, Shared Life was born out of a need we saw for those who had lost everything in the recent Australian bushfires. Through our director's involvement with not-for-profit organisation Fire Relief Run, we have personally worked with and tried to help many individuals. This has given us a unique perspective into the needs of those that have lost their homes and what they need to recover. Put simply, we want to offer a cost-effective and efficiently produced and installed housing solution to enable life to go on for these many individuals. Now, they have a range. You can go onto the website, have a look at Shed Life. They've got a range of options. It also works as a modular design. So it's it's sort of a series of components that can be customised and added to as well. The design's been formulated over a period of time and it's been really interesting to see how it's taken shape. And on their website, you can access floor plans of the different options. You can also see prices and then there's, you can download specifications. And they add on each of the designs that they generally include double glazing, wall, roof and underfloor insulation, oak engineered timber flooring, low VOC internal and external painting and low energy LED lighting and they're complete with joinery, fixtures and fittings to kitchens, uh, to the kitchen, bedrooms, bathrooms and laundry areas. And Shed Life says that they can assemble all sheds on site and in the future they're going to be offering flat pack options for builders and owner builders. And they've already got some projects underway with submissions into council for development approval. So really amazing to see what's happening on the ground in terms of these different strategies and approaches to helping people basically, I suppose, transition into the next whatever their new normal looks like and be able to get on with their life in a way that has dignity and um, comfort and, you know, can help them rebuild um, their life in other ways. So it's really, yeah, I'm really interested to see what's, what I think is worth mentioning though is that rebuilding is a really big effort and there's going to be so many people that are just still trying to wrap their heads around what is the best option and may feel a little bit paralysed in the decision-making around that. Some will still be negotiating with insurers or seeing what government assistance they can access to to fund their rebuilding efforts. A lot of people are either underinsured or weren't insured at all. Um, Australia has some big challenges around how many people are underinsured or not insured for their home. And after the 2009 fires, in all of my research in uh, creating this content season and the content project of Rebuild and Build Better and the conversations I've had with people who were involved in the 2009 recovery, and you've probably heard me mention this before, is that there was a lot of criticism after the 2009 fires about pushing people to rebuild too quickly and about just trying to get them back into houses and it not necessarily being well, they're not necessarily ending up with the kind of house that they really wanted or getting the opportunity or the space to think about what life was going to look like beyond this experience and kind of just going about rebuilding what they had in the past and that not necessarily suiting what their life looked like now or what their life was going to look like in the future. So there's been a much stronger recognition of how important it is to help people feel more supported and be able to create their own strategy and their pathway to rebuilding and to have the space and the support to be able to do that in a way that really suits their needs and their circumstances. And this long-term effort, of course, has been made all the more challenging with COVID and what that's meant for visiting impacted areas, for being able to you know, travel into these locations, for people to be able to gather and meet in person and for, you know, for people who want to help and support be able to travel into communities to do information sessions 
and a range of other things that would ordinarily be occurring as part of the recovery efforts. You know, there was a small window of opportunity where there were community meetings happening, there were professionals going in and doing workshops, there were, you know, meetings happening in community centres on the ground, really sort of trying to connect people with the government funding they could access, the relief funding they could access, what their pathway was to be able to make next steps. And then all of that kind of ground to a halt. And you know, at the same time, though, so many people have mobilised to um, do what they can and run virtual events as well. But there's also not necessarily been access to technology and internet and those kinds of things in some of these areas still. Or people are living in temporary accommodation or they're staying with friends or they're doing that kind of thing and don't necessarily have access to the same services they would if they were established in their own locations and in their own homes. What I think is different this time compared to the 2009 fires, though, is obviously the prevalence of social media and the internet generally and what that can do to connect people. And I think that the main thing is just hopefully making those impacted um, aware of what is available and how they can access the help that they can need. So in that vein, you know, please, if you know anyone who's impacted, if you know of any communities or any organisations, I've had members from the UA community get in touch with me to say that they're part of Facebook groups that of people that are recovering after losing um, or being impacted by the bushfires and they've been sharing the Undercover Architect resources into those Facebook groups or they've been sending Undercover Architect resources to friends and family members and those types of things that they know are impacted. So make sure that you do what you can to to get this help reaching as far and wide as it possibly can. And I've also popped um, Julie's information in the resources so you can get in touch with her as well if you want to learn more about Julie Firkin Architects. In the next episode, Julie's actually going to be back and we're going to be talking about designing for um, bushfire prone areas and the work that she did with architecture students in a design studio at Monash University where they explored the idea of bushfire community centres as a solution for bushfire refuge locations in bushfire prone areas. It's a really interesting um, idea and something that we talk about. We also talk about what it looks like to work with architects or, or how architects can help those recovering after such traumatic events and how we can really work together to support people who are going through rebuilding efforts. And I think for anybody who is even just building in a bushfire prone area, this is really useful information so that you can know how to think about any strategies that you're going to employ in building new in or renovating an existing house that's in a bushfire prone area. So make sure that you head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild. We've got all that we're sharing there for the rebuild and build better series. You can bookmark it so we, you can keep checking back. It's going to really grow as an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or who wants to build a better and more resilient home. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.